0: That brings us to the next division. The next division are specific oracles against Israel, three specifically. Chapters 3, 1 through 15, chapter 4, 1 through 13, and chapter 5, 1 through 17. And then he will follow up with two woes of judgments Amos 5, 18 through 27, and then Amos 6, 1 through 4. Two woes. Now, woes are like mourning rituals. It's woe like everything is dead, and I have no hope. I'm incredibly depressed. And so woes are like ruins that are going to come. So chapter 3, verse 1. Listen, you Israelites, to this message, which Yahweh is proclaiming against you. This message is for the entire clan I brought up from the land of Egypt. I have chosen you alone from the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. I, of all, this is Exodus 19 language. God says, though all the nations belong to me, you will be my special possession. And God says, right here, I chose you from all the nations of the world, and now you're going to be held to a higher standard of judgment, higher standard of accountability. Do two walk together without having met? Does a lion roar in the woods as if he has not cornered his prey? Does a young lion bellow from his den, if he has not caught something? Does a bird swoop down into a trap on the ground if there is no bait? Does a trap spring up from the ground unless it has surely caught something? And if alarm sounds in the city, do people not fear? If disaster overtakes the city, is Yahweh not responsible? Certainly the sovereign Yahweh does nothing without first revealing his plan to servants the prophets. A lion has roared who is not afraid. The sovereign Yahweh has spoken who can refuse prophecy. Now Amos And these 3 through 5, these verses 3 through 5, gives these questions, and the answer is no. Okay, the implied answer is no. While Amos 6 anticipates an answer of yes. Now, we don't live in that culture, but basically Amos lists off a few things, and everybody in the culture is like, yeah, well, no, of course not. Everybody knows that. And then he lists off more, and and everybody's like, "Well, yes, of course, so everybody knows that." The implication then is, everybody knows that. That's a objective, absolute fact. So certainly, Yahweh does nothing without first revealing His plan to His servants and His prophets. So He says, just like everybody knows that these things do and do not happen, everybody should know that Yahweh always gives you advance warning. He always gives you events warning. he always reveals his will to you. He always reveals first his will for you, the law of what he wants you to act like. And he gives you plenty of years of him reminding you of what the law expects of you. And then when you don't meet the law, he specifically reveals his will of judgment for you. And he gives you plenty of years of hearing prophets say that over and over and over again. So what Yahweh is basically saying is that none of this is a surprise, what I have expected from you has been clearly revealed. And what I'm going to do to you for violating this has been clearly revealed to you and will be clearly revealed to you. Remember, Amos starts prophesying in the year 767. The Assyrians are not going to come until 722. And that doesn't even count all the prophets that are not written down before that. And the times that Yahweh has come to them and the Judges. And the times he's come to them in David, and Saul, and Solomon. Then Yahweh ends it where he begins. Does a lion roar in the woods if he has not cornered his prey? And at the end he says, Yahweh has roared, and he has spoken. Verse 9. Make this announcement in the fortress of Ashdod, and the fortress in the land of Egypt. Say this. Now remember, Ashdod is in the Philistine territory. Egypt is a foreign nation. Say this, gather on the hills of Samaria. Samaria is in the north. Observe the many acts of violence taking place within the city, the oppressive deeds occurring in it. So, what he basically does is God sarcastically invites the other nations to a front row seat to the sin and the destruction of Israel. And basically, what he's doing is he's putting them in a position of moral superiority. If you're coming to buy front row tickets at an amphitheater to watch the destruction of a people for their sins, the implications you think you're better than them. And so what God is doing here is, one, do not misinterpret this. God's not saying, hey, everybody, this is going to be really cool. Let's watch my people die in the gladiator pits. That is not the character of God. This is a rhetorical, philosophical argument that he's making. He's not sarcastically inviting the people to actually literally take joy in watching Israel be defeated. He's sarcastically inviting the nations to watch the destruction of Israel and the implication of the idea is if they are watching you be destroyed, they feel like they're better than you because God is saying they are. No matter how evil these nations are, your sins are far worse. And this is what saddens and breaks God's heart even more, that his chosen people who received the law and had God dwelling with them and speaking to them have actually become more sinful and far worse than all the foreign nations around them who have never experienced God before. And that's the implication. By inviting them to watch the destruction, he's insulting Israel by saying, you become worse than them. He's not literally inviting them to take joy in it, He's making a philosophical argument about their sin. This is one of the reasons he uses other nations. Verse 10. They do not know how to do what is right. Yahweh is speaking. They store up the spoils of destructive violence in their fortresses. Therefore, therefore, says the sovereign Yahweh, an enemy will encircle the land. He will take away your power. Your fortresses will be looted. You have made money. Off of the violence that has surrounded you. You've made money off of other people dying, other nations being destroyed. Therefore, God is going to use the other nations to encircle you and destroy you. If you make money off of violence, then he will use violence to bring you down. You will reap what you sow. This is what Yahweh says, verse 12. Just as a shepherd salvages from the lion's mouth a couple of leg bones or a piece of an ear, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be salvaged. They will be left with just a corner of a bed and a part of a couch. Listen and warn the family of Jacob. Sovereign Yahweh, the God commands armies, is speaking. Now that's a really sad, depressing imagery. Think about it. Don't think lamb being attacked by a lion Think of your little dog or your little cat being tortured and captured by a lion. And you go and you're like, no, and you're running to it. The thing that you really love that sits in your lap and you pet and you feed and you get into the lion and all you can pull away is like a leg bone in an ear of your pet. That's all that's left. That's absolutely depressing, okay, and sad. And sorry, girls. It's like, that's really sad for children, okay? Um, But the reality is this is what God is saying. This is what's going to happen to Israel. When the Assyrians come, there will not be much left of you. And and, and the same imagery of depression and sadness that God is trying to evoke for your pet, he's also trying to say, this is what I feel for Israel. There's a part of me who's absolutely angry and livid, and I will punish them as harshly as I can because that's what they deserve. But there's another part of him who's absolutely sad and heartbroken at the fact that this is his child that he's doing this to and has to do it to. And we're really going to see that in Hosea. We're going to see this imagery of a father who will go from anger to sadness to justice to compassion because he's having to punish his own people. He's having to punish his own people. And so what he's saying is this destruction is going to be thorough. Don't think we'll escape the judgment because we have money, we have power, we have connections. Like 2012, or that movie, that really bad movie, and they basically built all these ships like Noah's Ark and the world flood is gonna come, the end of the world's coming, and they basically bite tickets on the boats and the really wealthy people escape the judgment because they have money. And even right now, there's a whole bunch of bunkers around America that the wealthy have already bought tickets for to go into when any, some kind of doomsday judgment comes, and they'll leave everybody shut out, and they will go there and be safe. And what God is basically saying is, eh, God has ways of getting in bunkers. <laughs> Don't think. All that's going to be left is legs and ears. Nobody is going to escape this judgment, because God cannot be outmatched. Yahweh is speaking. Notice how often that comes. Okay? Because that's the attitude of the kings. Okay? I have spoken and this is law. And God's like, no, 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 no. Remember when David in chapter 12 was abusing his power? The real problem was not him sleeping with Bathsheba, the real problem was abuse of power. He sent Joab away. He sent for Bathsheba. He sent for her. He took her. He sent her away. He sent for Uriah. Now, Not that that's not a sin, sleeping with Bathsheba, but that was the symptom of a heart that had become corrupt with power and treating everybody like pawns and objects for his own wealth, his satisfaction, and power. And over and over again, it says, David sent, David sent, David sent. That's a cocky, powerful, entitled man who uses other people for his own power. And at the very end, David thought he got away with it. And the last verse of chapter 12 is, but Yahweh was displeased with this. Meaning, kings get whatever they want. And there's no power, there's no authority that any king answers to. Except Yahweh. And this is what you must understand. This is why we need a God. Okay, the atheists say, we want a world without a God. Because if there's no God, then we're free to do whatever we want. There's no judgment, there's no consequences, and, and we, we can do whatever we want. But that's exactly what happens. When you have no God, there is no higher authority to punish dictators. Okay? There, there's no... You need an authority that's greater than the most powerful dictators so that they will be held accountable and punished. And that's why chapter 11 ends that way. The thing displeased Yahweh. No matter how ultimately sovereign you are, David... You're nothing compared to me. And then the very next verse of chapter, the first verse of chapter 12 says, and Yahweh sent Nathan. You think you're all that, David? I will do my own sending. And I will tell you how it is. And that's the idea of Yahweh has spoken as it keeps echoing over and over again. You think you speak, you presidents, and you dictators, and you kings, and you're the absolute authority, or you Congress, and nobody can make you answer for your crimes, Yahweh is speaking. And there will only be legs and ears left after I'm done with you. Now, that seems horrific and harsh, but think of what people like Hitler and the Khmer Rouge and all of them have done throughout human history. And it's and, and this, I th- my wife and I are talking about this. So those who've been doing Tim Keller's, like going through the Psalms devotional, the first, how many Psalms are like, David's like, kill the nations and do this to them and that kind of stuff, and Andrew's like, that's really harsh, like, and the legitimate question of how do we reconcile this with a loving God, like this seems really jacked up and evil, and and my answer was after thinking about for a while and just going through all this stuff is, but you and I have never lived in a country where we have been truly. Oppressed. We don't know what it's like to have our whole family kidnapped and put in the ghetto and then sl- shipped off to the, the gas chambers and only a few of us got away. We don't know what it's like. Have you ever seen that movie, The Killing Fields? Go watch it. It's about what the Khmer Rouge did to Cambodia back in the 80s, I think 70s or 80s. And we don't know what it's like for him to like trip and fall and he gets up and he just, he's in a valley of a, a rice paddy fields of just dead bodies of all of his fellow people. And what it's like to crawl through those dead... I remember seeing that as a kid. That was a powerful image that just, like, bore into my mind of just him digging through all these dead bodies trying to escape the slaughter, the Hootsies and the Tootsies and what they did to each other. And when Japan went into um, China, massacred them, what we did, the American Indians. We don't know what it's like to be a people group that just barely survived a massacre, and we're all that's left. And to have witnessed that happen to your mom and your brothers and your sisters... We've never experienced that before to feel what David feels when he says, do it to them. I need justice. We've never looked evil in the face and seen it really ravage our family. We've watched news clips, and we've seen things, but that's not the same thing. It's better than nothing to help you gain sympathy, but it's not the same thing. And that's why we say, God bless America. But it also puts us out of touch with the cry of the oppressed and the victims for justice. It puts us out of touch with that cry. And we say, how could you, God? And everybody else in the world is like, yeah, exactly, God. That's what we want. This is why the Bible says in Isaiah, the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. And you're like, wow, how graphic, God. Now, God doesn't mean we're literally going to do that. but What he means is, I will give you justice. Remember, this is all poetic language. This is all poetic language of justice. Verse 14, Certainly when I punish Israel for their covenant transgressions, I will destroy Bethel's altars. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Remember, Bethel is where the first golden calves were built by um, Jeroboam when he became king. Not only is he going to tear down the altar, he's going to cut off the horns. Remember, in the ancient world, horns represent authority. I'm going to cut your authority off. I will destroy both the winter and the summer houses. I'm going to destroy your home here and your one in Florida. Your your extreme wealth. And I don't mean that. I'm I'm not going to say that against anybody who does that. But the idea is, it's one thing to have two houses if you're truly serving God. It's another thing to live up in your wealth and ignore everybody and have two houses. And that's the idea here. Whether you have two houses or not is between you and God and the Holy Spirit and I will let him convict you. And I don't mean that in an indirect kind of a way. I just mean that's up to him whether he has said it's okay or not. But here, nobody has two houses and is serving and taking care of the poor. Okay, There are lots of people who have two houses or big houses or multiple cars, and they are pouring tons of stuff into charities and healthy people and all that kind of stuff. And to them, God doesn't have this message. These are the people who bought their second house from oppressing the poor and cheating them or completely ignoring them all the time. That's the point. The houses filled with ivory will be ruined. The great houses will be swept away, Yahweh speaking. This is the home and garden network. I kid you not. One of the things, so I do construction this summer. So when we sit down and watch lunch, the only television I watch in the years like at lunchtime at construction, okay? And they always have the television on. And it used to be the price is right all the time. okay? But since they got cable there, now it's the home and garden network and the DIY network and all that kind of stuff. And I kid you not, like, like, when I went and looked for houses, I was just like, well, this isn't working, and that's not working, and that's not working. So I don't know if I want this house because I'm going to have to spend X amount of dollars to repair it. And I can repair that, and I can repair that, and I can repair that. But this is going over my budget. So no. And then I was just trying to find a house that had the most things working, so I'd spend the less money on remodeling. And I love remodeling, and I love that when I bought my first house, but with three girls it's a little bit different. These people are going in, they're just like, they're looking at these big houses and they're like, I don't know if I like that countertop, okay? And, and granted we've all done that before, but for me it's like, this is a gorgeous granite countertop. And they're like, that swimming pool is just slightly three feet off. I would prefer it to be three feet over here, so no on the house. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'd be so happy for a swimming pool. The things that they're like saying, I'm like, what the heck? How could you be absolutely that picky? And I get it. I get it. We're all like that to a certain degree. But these, but we're not just talking, we're talking about million dollar houses. It's like, what could you absolutely be unhappy with? And that you couldn't possibly fix so easily. That's what drove me nuts. I just couldn't deal with that mentality. And that's what God is dealing with this here is like, you're filling your houses with ivory. And you're nitpicking these details. Meanwhile, people are over here dying. And I struggle with that. Even remodeling my house, I struggle with like should I be doing this? But there's another part of me is like, I just like building things. And I have to build things because this is my way of stress relieving. And, and most of the times I also do it on gift cards. So <laughs> that helps too. Um, so, but that's a struggle that we have as Americans. And I can't answer that question for you. Because I don't know your heart. I don't know what your money is. And I don't know what you're doing to help people. And I have no right to condemn you for your cars your televisions or your houses unless I'm very intimately involved in your life and you've given me the right to be an accountability partner. But that is something that we need to listen to the Holy Spirit when it comes to our houses because all of us are wealthy. And I'm not saying this in a condemning, judgmental way because I've been there and done it. But I'm saying this as in open the ears to what the Holy Spirit is saying and not what the culture is saying. And maybe God has nothing to say to you Because you have what you have because God gifted it to you and you are using it in other people's lives. Or maybe God does have something to say to you. And I don't know. That's a legitimate question mark for me. But that's a question mark you should be taking to him. Am I falling more into the American culture of ivory in my house? Or am I truly taking this ivory in my house and finding a way to bless other people with it and glorify God? And that's the question we should be asking ourselves. That's what God is dealing with. Remember, Jesus says, use your wealth to build the kingdom of God. He did not say you should all live in cardboard boxes and feel guilty for having a cardboard box. Okay, like where do you draw the line? He said, You're the idea is when I build a swimming pool and I get angry that everybody in the neighborhood has become my friends. Okay, and I'm like, what the heck? Nobody cared about me until I built this swimming pool. That is what he's judging and condemning right here. But what Jesus says, use your wealth to influence friends for the kingdom of God. What he's saying is build a swimming pool because I gave you the money to do it. And then when everybody comes to your backyard and wants to be your friends, then be thankful that they're now a captive audience for the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you didn't have to awkwardly go door to door in your neighborhood. Bring them over, open the swimming pool. Get the hot dogs out and serve them and take care of them and use your wealth for them and don't complain that they become your friends. Thank God that you have so many non-Christian friends that are now going to see the love and the generosity that you have for them. And yes, there might be lawsuits and yes, people might rip the lining of your pool, but do you trust the sovereign God of the universe to take care of that? If you build it for his glory and they will come, then do you trust them that he'll maintain the field of dreams for you? Because that's the idea. Look, the same idea. They have lots of wealth and they're angry that people want to share the wealth and they're using it to make other people poor. Jesus comes along and says, there's nothing wrong with the ivory in your house as long as you're using it to win and influence friends for the kingdom of God. The wealth is not the problem. He gave Abraham tons of wealth and Abraham threw it out. He gave Solomon tons of wealth And Solomon oppressed the people, and he ripped the kingdom from him. The question is not what you have. The question is, what are you doing with it? The prophets, he condemns them. Jesus, he says, I gave it to you to use. That's the question you need to ask God. What do you want me to do with this? I am not the answer to that. Your pastor is not the answer to that. Your friends in the church can help you brainstorm. But ultimately the Holy Spirit is the answer to what I am to do with this.